Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss learning how to learn, meta-learning, how Salvador Dali and Thomas Edison practiced the art of sleeping without sleeping to hack their nervous systems, the concept of chunking, and what the neuroscience says about it and how you can use it to become a learning machine, why following your passion is not the right thing to focus on, and much more with our guest, Barbara Oakley. The Science of Success continues to grow with more than 900,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. I get listener comments and emails all the time asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? A lot of our listeners are curious about how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to awesome podcasts, and more. Because of that, we've created an epic resource just for you, a detailed guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. And you can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. All you have to do to get it is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or go to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and put in your email. In our previous episode, we discussed how school gives you zero of the social and interpersonal skills necessary to be successful in life. 
the best starting point for building nonverbal communication, how to read facial expressions and body language to discover hidden emotions, how to become a human lie detector, the secrets super connectors use to work a room, and much more with Vanessa Van Edwards. If you want to become a human lie detector, listen to that episode. Hey, everybody, I just wanted to let you know before we get into this episode, you know, there are some audio quality issues with this particular recording. We can't always control the audio of the guests that come on the show, and sometimes that leads to episodes that don't have the best audio quality. We try our best in editing and post-production to deliver the best possible audio experience, but oftentimes with guests, professors, people who are out in the field like Barbara, they don't have professional recording setups like we do on our end. I just wanted to make a note uh, and let you know at the beginning of this episode that there are some audio quality issues. We try our best every time to make sure the podcast have the best possible audio quality. And uh, I just wanted to give you a heads up before you listen to this one that there are some issues with Barbara's audio. One last thing I just wanted to let you know, you know, we thought about because of the audio quality issues, should we air this episode or should we not air it? And at the end of the day, we decided that there's enough value in this episode. This episode provides a tremendous amount of valuable information despite the audio quality issues. We felt that the best thing to do for the audience was to put this out there so that you could still learn from it. And we hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, Barbara Oakley. Barbara is an associate professor of engineering at Oakland University in Michigan. She's been described as the female Indiana Jones, and her research has taken her from Russian fishing boats to Antarctica. She's authored several books on topics ranging from genetics to neuroscience and has an upcoming book called Mindshift, Breakthrough Obstacles to Learning and Discover Your Human Potential. Barbara, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, Matt. Thanks so much for having, having me on here. Well, we're very excited to have you on here today. So for listeners who might not be familiar, I know you have a, a fascinating background. Tell us your story. Well, it's a little bit of a convoluted one. Basically, I had no idea I would end up doing what I'm doing. I flunked my way through elementary, middle, and high school math and science, which uh, I just thought, oh, you know, the only thing I can maybe do is is learn another language because I clearly can't do anything with math or science or technology. So I did learn another language. I, I joined the Army, and they taught me Russian. And I ended up working out on Soviet trawlers up in the Bering Sea. But I found something a little bit dismaying, and that was that I had followed my passion, just as everyone always said to do. And I followed it right into sort of a box, because basically working out on Russian fishing trawlers is about one of the few jobs you can do with a specialization that only involves knowing Russian. And so I, when I was 26 years old, I decided to retrain my brain if I could and see if I could actually learn math and science. And and to my shock, even today, I am now a professor of engineering, so it obviously worked. But I think that there's, if I'd known then what I knew, what I know now about how to learn and be successful in learning, I could have made it a lot easier. So that's a lot of what my work is about. So do you think that, that people today are, are math-phobic and afraid of math? Uh, surprisingly often, yes. And I think it's because of the way that math has been introduced and taught to them, at least in the West. What about the way that math is taught? It makes it so intimidating for people. There's been, over the past 
well, let's say over the last 2,000 years or so of human learning, there has been a, a very strong emphasis on memorization as a part, as, as sort of the basis, the sole basis of learning. And of course, it's not. Memorization is only like a part of learning. But over the last hundred years or so, there's been this sort of swing to the other side of things. We've said memorization is really bad when it comes to learning. And the only thing that's important is understanding. And and that's, that's bad, too. Uh, for example, I had a student come up to me once. I was teaching statistics, and, and he shows me his test, and it's all red line, and he says, I can't believe I flunked this test because I understood it when you said it in class. And I mean, I almost had to laugh because he has clearly heard through his life sort of echoes from, um, you know, a zillion teachers. If you just understand it, that's enough. But it's not enough. Practice and repetition is a critical part of of building expertise in any discipline, and that includes math and science. And unfortunately, we've, we've kind of thrown that out. We've placed so much emphasis on understanding that we forget that that's only part of, of learning. You're an expert in, in how we learn and, and the concept of, I guess I'd call it, or maybe you call it meta-learning. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of what that is and why it's so important? Well, let's... Take me, for example. I, I learned how to learn Ru Russian, or I learned Russian, at the Defense Language Institute. Now, what I didn't realize that I was also learning at the same time, because nobody ever told me this, was that I was learning how to use deliberate practice on the parts of the material that were really the most difficult for me in order to kind of advance my learning more swiftly. A lot of times when you're learning something, you make the mistake of, hey, this is easy. It feels good to do some aspect you've already learned because you've already learned it. And so you sort of tend to spend your time on this easier stuff instead of always pushing the edge, kind of going, now what's difficult for me, that's what I need to practice with. So when I was learning Russian, I learned about this concept of deliberate practice where I push myself on the stuff I'm really having trouble with. I also learned about practice and repetition when I'm learning verb conjugations and various sorts of and procedural fluency, that it's not really enough to know how to conjugate a verb, but to know how to conjugate different kinds of verbs and pull them up instantly whenever I need them and mix them together with other sorts of things. All of these are, are meta-learning ideas that apply equally well to learning in math and science or learning to drive a car, learning to play soccer, learning how to play a musical instrument. It's all really the same kind of thing. And so what ties all of these ideas together is the concept of chunking. And chunking, there's a lot of interesting neuroscientific research that's coming out on this now. But we didn't understand before that when you're first sitting down to look at something and learn it, your little working memory in your prefrontal cortex is, is going nuts because it's trying to make sense of this really difficult to handle material. But once you've mastered it, or you understand it, and you've practiced with it, you can actually pull that chunk into mind, and then you have 
other, it's, well, what really happens is your prefrontal cortex settles down when you have acquired expertise. You, you might think it should be working harder, but it's not. It actually settles down because it's farmed out these, these mental processes to other parts of the brain, and it can just call them into play into the working memory whenever you need to, and it can even tie other things together when you need to. If you sort of really developed neural sort of these neural patterns that you've practiced with that you can easily pull to mind. There's a lot to unpack from that. And I'd love to start with the concept of deliberate practice. It's something we've talked about in the past and, and something I'm a huge fan of on the show. But for listeners who may not know about it, can you briefly explain kind of what is deliberate practice and, and why is it such a powerful technique? Well, let me give the example of learning to play a musical instrument. So let's say you want to get better at the guitar. Well, your tendency is to, you'll learn a chord and learn a few chords and maybe learn a song. And then you'll practice with that song. So maybe you'll spend an hour practicing this song at length, right? But you're practicing the whole song. You're not focusing on the parts of the song that you're really having trouble with. And so parts of that practice are really easy and comfortable to do because you already know it pretty well. But it's also kind of wasted time because you already know it. So instead of kind of wasting time on those easy parts that you already know, it's much better to put most of your time into the stuff that's really hard that you fumble finger over. And if you, the more you're able to place your, your attention on those really hard parts, the more quickly you will improve. So a, in some studies between people who have really become masters at whatever area they're working at, uh, whether it's playing chess or a sport or, or a, a musical instrument, the more that people put practice into the toughest stuff, the more rapidly they advance. So for me, I put that in my mind as, well, gee, you're sure making learning unpleasant, <laughs> right? Because you just you have to you're supposed to just work on the painful parts. But if if I instead reframe that in my mind as I'm gonna put X number amount of time into put really focusing on the tough stuff, whether I can only take a 25 minutes of doing that or whatever. So I, I put it in mind how how much can I really take of hard learning and then I set everything aside so that I'm only doing that hard learning during that time and that does seem to really help so let's let's dig deeper into kind of how to become better learners one of the things you've talked about is is the difference between the the focus mode and the diffuse mode in the brain can you dig into that distinction and why it's so important from a, from a learning standpoint? It's easy to look at the brain and its extraordinary complexity and get sort of lost in it. 
But the reality is that research is showing that there's just sort of like two fundamentally different modes of thinking that the brain uses, almost like two different ways of perceiving the world. And one of them is what I'll call focus mode. And it might be considered, it's sometimes termed task positive networks uh, by the psycho- in the psychology literature. And there's a little bit of evidence that actually this kind of focus mode is, is more left brain oriented, although any type of thinking, you obviously need, need both sides of the brain. But focus mode thinking is you can turn it on instantly, sort of like a flashlight. Boom, it's on, and then you can focus on that math problem you were trying to solve or, or the bit of coding you wanted to do, or or even the the type of kick that you wanted to make in soccer. So you're focusing. And that involves sort of a smaller network in a particular area of your brain. But then there's a, uh, that other network I was talking about, and I'll call it the diffuse mode. And what I mean by this kind of catch-all term is the many neural resting states, the most prominent of which is the default mode network. And this network quite literally has broader range connections. So when you go into this diffuse mode, you're, you can't like do this tight focus type thinking that you can when you're solving a math problem or something, but you can at least get to a different place in your brain, right? A different way of thinking about things that can sometimes get you out of a rut. So for example, if you look at my old books when I was a, when I was trying to retrain my brain, so I was 26 had to start with remedial high school algebra. And if you look at the book, it has these dimples in the pages. And the dimples are because I get so frustrated. I take a fork out and I'd stab the book page with the fork. And what I didn't know now, I mean, of course, frustration with what you're learning, especially if it's tough, is quite common. And what you often need to do when you reach that stage you're in focus mode. So what you're doing is you're, you're kind of in this little tiny network and it's not the right network. So you're getting frustrated because you can't solve it being where you're at in your brain, so to speak. You can only solve it by taking a big step back and taking a completely different approach that can maybe get you to the part of the brain where you need to be to be thinking and solving this particular problem or understanding this particular concept. So learning often involves going back and forth between this tight network focused type thinking and this broader network diffuse type thinking. You can't be in both modes at the same time. You can only be in focus mode or diffuse mode. So that means as long as you're focusing, you're actually blocking the other type of thinking, the other network that you may need 
to be able to solve the problem or understand the concept. So that's why, again, when you get very frustrated, it's important to close the book, get your attention off it, whatever you're trying to learn, and just let your mind go. You can you can either focus on something different, or you can go for a walk, or, or just do something very different. And after a while, you're sort of your diffuse mode is like processing in the background. And when you next return to that concept, it makes more sense. And sometimes you'll say, oh, my goodness, how did I ever miss? It's so easy. I should have been understanding it. Now, you might say, well, why can't I be in focused and diffuse mode at the same time about the same topic? And the thing is, the brain just doesn't work that way unless you're on certain forms of mushrooms, and I am not suggesting that that's a good thing to do. So it's it's not possible without sort of some, some extreme interventions to simultaneously be in both the, the focus mode and the diffuse mode. Indications are about that same subject. You can't be in both modes at the same time. So if you're focusing on a particular problem, so to, uh, you you can't also be diffusing about the problem as as long as you're focusing on it. But if you switch your attention to something different, then your your diffuse mode can be processing in the background as long as your attention is switched. So on the same topic, the same problem, the same thing, you can't be in both modes at the same time. You've you've shared a couple examples in the past of, of particular famous people, specifically Salvador Dali and Thomas Edison, and how they were able to cultivate a strategy to switch between these modes in, in a way that helped them kind of harness the benefits of both. Could you share those those stories and examples? Sure. So Salvador Dali had a technique that he called sleeping without sleeping. And what he would do with this is he would sit in a chair with some keys in his hand and he'd relax, relax, relax. He's kind of loosely thinking about whatever problem with his surrealist painting. He was a great surrealist painter that he was trying to resolve or perhaps a business-related problem. And he'd relax away with his keys in his hand and they'd be, his hand would be dangling above the floor. And just as he'd relaxed so much that he'd fall asleep, the keys would fall from his hands, the clatter would wake him up, and as he was in this sort of relaxed, almost drifting towards dreamlike state, he would get these ideas that were extremely creative. And as soon as the keys would drop, he, the clatter would wake him up and he, he'd come out of that diffuse mode reverie back into the focus mode. And that's where he could refine and analyze and work with the ideas that had come to him while he was in the diffuse mode. So you might think, wow, well, that's great for surrealist painters, but, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer. How does that help me? And what's interesting is that Thomas Edison apparently did something almost identical, except he sat in a chair with ball bearings in his hand, at least according to legend. And 
relax, relax away, kind of loosely cogitating on some sort of a technical issue he was trying to resolve. And just as he'd fall asleep, like the ball bearings would fall from his hand, the clatter would wake him up, and off he'd go with to to work on some of these new creative ideas that had come to him. Now I've tried this and you know, I have trouble sleeping anyway, and when I do fall asleep, I I really fall asleep. <laughs> so it doesn't work too well for me. But perhaps it might work better for some of the listeners. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So when we have something to study or something we really want to drill down and, and, and focus on deeply, what's the best balance between kind of focused attention and, I guess, daydreaming or diffuse thinking? That is a very good question because there actually is 
an important balance depending on what you're doing. So, for example, if you are doing your taxes and you're fo- that's something that requires intense focused effort, and your best bet is to put yourself in a room with no distractions whatsoever and so that you can really work away in a focused way on whatever you're working on. But let's say that you're working on something like trying to understand cardiac function or how an irrigation system uh, that you're designing might come together or, or that you're building and something that involves like a bigger picture you're just you're not just memorizing or working through rote kinds of things you sometimes need to focus but then also step back and see the bigger picture and and the best way to do that is to do something like go to a coffee shop because a coffee shop, what will happen is you go along, you can be focusing away, and then suddenly there'll be like a little clatter in the background. And that, that little clatter and the little bit of a little noise here and there, it, it, what it does is it momentarily seems to take you out of the focus mode and put you momentarily into default mode network, into diffuse mode kind of thinking. So these little occasional transitions are helpful because they kind of distract you. You look at it with a bigger picture way, and it can help you to understand sort of these kinds of bigger picture issues. So, for example, my the book I have coming out now is called Mind Shift, and in it I write about things like this. Medical schools sometimes have problems with students who seem to be, on the face of it, stellar students. They get great grades. They're just superb. They are the kinds of students who can sit there and memorize all the anatomical terms, maybe in a couple hours. The other students might have to spend weeks, even months, trying to learn because medical school is a deluge of information. And so these ACE memorizers can easily pick up uh, memorized material, but then they might sit down and they'll use the same technique to study for a cardiology exam. Well, guess what? You can't memorize how the heart is functioning and sort of see and imagine all the different kinds of things that are happening simultaneously and that influence one another. It takes a very different kind of studying, and that often takes much more time. So here are these ACE memorizers who are superstars when it comes to the anatomy examinations. Suddenly, they give themselves way too little time to study for something like a, a cardiology examinations, and they do terribly because they think they can just memorize it, but it doesn't work. So... I think that there's a lesson for us in all of this, and that is that, of course, memorization is an important part of learning, but often you do need to be able to step back and make sure that you've synthesized information, particularly about complex systems that have sort of a lot of moving parts to them, so to speak. So... For for people that have learning limitations or or struggle with things like a slow memory or ADHD, what does that mean for their learning style? And and does that, you know, inhibit their ability to become effective learners? 
ADHD is very interesting in that we we often sort of penalize individuals whose attention is kind of like, oh, shiny, you suddenly get distracted and it, it sort of falls out what you were doing. But the reality is that individuals that have these kinds of challenges can actually have a, a superior, they can have a big advantage over those who have steel trap sorts of working memories and minds. And that the reason for that is that if you have this easy distractibility, what it seems is that, in essence, things fall out of your working memory very easily. It's not sticky. But when something falls out, something else goes in. And that's where more creativity comes from. And so research has shown that individuals with more working memory problems or ADHD or distractibility, they are often more creative. So do you have to work harder to sort of keep up with the Jones, the people who, who have a really tenacious working memory? Yeah, you do. But you would not want to trade off the what the advantage that your poor working memory actually gives you and more than that people with a, a sort of a slow way of thinking it can be a little bit demoralizing because you're sitting in class and the teacher utters some complex question and before the the mouths of the, the, the words have even escaped the teacher's mouth some race car driver brain person has already got their hand up in the air with the answers. But, you know, so what it, where does that leave the rest of us? And where it leaves the rest of us is a very interesting and sometimes very desirable place. Because the race car, the, the person with the race car brain, they get there really fast. But in some sense, think about what a race car driver sees. Everything goes by in a blur and boom, they're there. Now, the rest of us may have something that I would call like a hiker brain. You get there, but it's really slower. So a hiker brain is like you can reach out. I mean, a hiker can reach out and touch the leaves. They can smell the air, the pine in the air. They can hear the birds, see the little rabbit trails. Completely different experience than the race car brain, and in some ways, richer and deeper. So um, my hero in science is the is Santiago Ramón y Cajal. He was he won the Nobel Prize. He's considered the father of modern neuroscience. And what Ramón y Cajal said was, I am no genius. And he was being honest. He said, I got to where I am because I was persistent and because I was flexible when the data told me that I was wrong in my conjectures. He said, I am no genius but I have worked with many geniuses. And he said, geniuses tend to jump to conclusions, and then because they're used to always being right, they have difficulty changing their minds when they're wrong. If you are a slower thinker, rejoice. Sometimes you can see things that even the geniuses miss. So there's definitely a, a place for you. Tell me about the illusion of competence and how that factors into learning strategies. Well, 
We all suffer from illusions of competence in learning. For example, I'll sometimes be trying to learn something and I realize that I've kind of spaced out a little bit. I haven't been testing myself to see if I really understood the concept because sometimes you, it's a bit painful to, to really push yourself with learning and to actively, it's so much easier to watch a video on how to solve a problem and then say, oh, I got it. I don't need to work this myself. And it's, it's simply not true. You often, for example, one class I had, the worst student in the class, he would watch the videos and he would come to class and it was just not, he couldn't grab it. He just thought that his presence in watching the videos uh, when he was trying to learn something or, or sitting in the class would kind of get it into his brain through osmosis. And he just didn't recognize that you actively have to do it if you want to master the material. So I, I think one thing that is apparent to me is sort of makes me laugh whenever a student comes up to me and says, you know, I suffer from past anxiety. What makes me laugh is that as a society, we've more or less encouraged this kind of misunderstanding of what learning entails. Because, I mean, don't get me wrong, test anxiety is real. I suffered from test anxiety. But over the decades, as I've taught, I've discovered that 99% of those who claim to have test anxiety never work with their groups, never work hard on the homework problems. They're at a loss because basically they're not doing the work on the side to try to understand the material. So it's, it's really important to, to be aware of how you're fooling yourself when you're trying to learn something. Often, the first thing that comes to mind about why you're unable to learn something is, is a thought that's actually fooling yourself. You may say, you know, I just don't have a talent for math, for example, when actually it isn't all at that at all. It's that you've, for example, procrastinated about learning math, and then you've come up the last minute and you're trying to learn it all at once. And of course, you can't do that. So the best ways to get a, or some of the best ways to get around illusions of competence in learning are to test yourself at every possible time that you can do that. So make little flashcards for yourself. If you're learning a language, it's natural to develop flashcards or anatomy parts or, or, but actually even flashcards when you're learning in math and science can be extremely valuable. We often say that, well, poets will say, memorize the poem and you will understand it more deeply. But why should we let the poets have all the fun? I mean, if you have an equation, that equation is a form of poetry. And if you memorize it, you'll think about it more deeply. So don't just sit there and mechanically try to memorize it, but go, now let's see, why is that M multiplying times the A? Why isn't it dividing, right? So you're memorizing F is equal to MA, but it's you're, you're thinking about it, right? Or, or if you're taking 
mass times velocity squared over two. Why is that velocity squared? So you're thinking about these equations in your, as you're memorizing them, and it will enhance your understanding. So test yourself, make little flashcards, even put equations. Like if you are working a problem for homework, it just, just kind of floors me sometimes. We have this philosophy that you just do a homework problem once and you turn it in and you somehow have absorbed how to do it. And that's like saying, yeah, you sing a song one time. Sure, now you're suddenly Lady Gaga. You can sing like that. It just doesn't work that way when you're learning something difficult. So your best bet, if there are some, you can't like really internalize everything. But if you're learning something difficult in math and science or language or anything, you what you'll want to do is, for example, take a problem and then see if you can work it cold. And if you can't, take whatever hints you need to, you know, look, and then try later in the day to see if you can work it cold. And then try that over the next couple days. And what you'll soon find is that you worked it enough times that, boy, that problem just, it flows like honey from your mind, like a song. It, whenever you look at the problem, you can kind of see the steps that you need to do in order to solve the problem. And that is rich learning. So that, and you can, then when you're under stress with an examination, you've got these ideas so deeply internalized that They'll flow naturally, even under conditions of stress. And of course, they'll stick with you for many, many more years. The other little trick that can really help with illusions of competence in learning is to use the method of recall. And what recall involves is you just, let's say you're reading chapter in a book and you're trying to internalize the key ideas. So you read it, read a page, and then this is key with this technique. You just look away and see what you can recall as far as the main idea. Now, if you want to, you can put a little note in the margin or maybe just a bit of underline somewhere. But the, what you really want to be doing is looking away and see if you have internalized the key idea enough so that you can you can regurgitate it on your own. By contrast, if you simply reread the text, your eyes will flow over it, but you won't internalize it. Or if you just underline a bunch of stuff, or even if you do concept mapping, none of these techniques is as good as simply seeing if you can recall what you've just read. So for those of us that aren't you know, sort of students, are these strategies still effective? And what are some of the strategies we can use in our in our everyday lives to build and retain knowledge? Well, it depends a lot on what you're trying to to learn. The key idea here, like when I was talking about recall and reading something difficult, often no matter what you're doing, let's say that you're in business and you're sitting there listening to someone's report. What you really want to be doing is trying to get one chunk, a key chunk, maybe a couple of them. So these are the key points that that person is making. And so what you want to be doing is sitting there and analyzing, okay, there's this wall of words coming out at me. 
what's the what's the uh, crystal or what are the couple of little crystallized ideas that this person is really trying to communicate because during a, a presentation like that you're actually being taught and you're learning something and so that's a good way to sort of synthesize what you're learning another technique that's more applicable just for learning in general and in life is oftentimes when you're when you're trying to sort of retool yourself or learn something new you always feel like you're at a disadvantage because let's say you're trying to learn a new programming language for your job you'll be thinking wow you know, there's these other people who are so far ahead of me that uh, how can I even catch up? For me, when I was trying to switch from language study to, to becoming an engineer, I was thinking, oh, all these people know so much more than me. And, and we all do this kind of thing where we feel like we're an imposter whenever we're in a work situation where it's kind of new to us and everybody else seems to know more than we do. But now psychologists will tell you that that feeling like an imposter is a very bad thing and you should just stop it because you're just terrific and you're there by virtue of the fact that you've got so many gifts and you're not just lucky, you're just really talented and all this kind of stuff. And I, I think that's kind of baloney in some ways. And the, the reason, and I think it's very well-meaning, it's nice to, to tell people to stop thinking that way, but I think they don't need to stop thinking that feeling like a, an imposter is a bad thing. I think feeling like an imposter is a wonderful thing because what that does is it gives you a kind of beginner's mind. It makes you much more open to what's going on around you. you you'll look at things and think about things. See, when you're the outsider, when you're the new one, it gives you... I mean, even if you're like, for example, for me, I'm a, a woman in engineering and there's not as many women in engineering, but that can be a good thing because it gets me used to, oh, I'm different. So if I have ideas that are different, that's okay. I'm used to that. So I think it's a healthy thing, actually, to sometimes be a bit of an outsider by virtue of whatever reason. Because it gets you more used to, hey, it's okay to think a little differently from everyone else. And also, it does keep you a little bit more open because you're trying to figure out what that situation is. So you're watching more carefully. You're not like overconfident that you're, oh, you're just so smart and gifted and intelligent that of course you're going to be a superstar. So these are my kinds of thoughts and approaches about learning in the greater working world. Earlier you touched on procrastination. I'm curious, why do we procrastinate? We procrastinate sometimes, in fact, many times, because it hurts. It, it turns out if you even just think about something you don't like or you don't want to do, it activates 
the a portion of the brain, the insular cortex, that experiences pain. And so the brain, naturally enough, looks for ways to stop that negative stimulation, and it turns your attention away from whatever you were thinking about. This is called procrastination, and that's exactly what happens a lot of times with procrastination. It's simply a slight change in what you're focusing on so that it takes away the pain. You do this once, you do it twice, no big deal at all. You do it very often, however, and it it is procrastination, and it'll have very serious long-term consequences on your life. So the, the biggest thing I recommend there is something called the Pomodoro Technique, and that was invented by the Italian Francesco Cirillo in the 1980s, and it's so super simple that's probably why I love it. And and actually, the, the course I teach is called Learning How to Learn, and it is the world's biggest massive open online course. So we've had approaching 2 million students now. I teach this course with Terence Sanowski, the Francis Crick professor at the Salk Institute. One interesting thing is students in this course, like I hear from a lot of these students, which is really tough when you've got 2 million students. And, but it also gives you a sense of what people find really important, and they love this Pomodoro technique. They find it incredibly effective and helpful. So I think if you hadn't heard of this technique before, it's, it's high time to hear about it. And if you have heard, then this, this is a good reminder for you. All you need to do is turn off all distractions so no little wingy dingy on your cell phone or notifications on your computer and you set a timer for 25 minutes and you just focus as intently as you can for those 25 minutes now if your mind distracts you and says something like my mind will say which is holy cow i've only done two minutes of my pomodoro and i've got 23 more minutes to do i just can't do it and i just let that thought go right on by and i return my focus to the pomodoro or to whatever i'm focusing on and then when i'm done i relax now this is not to say if i'm really in the flow i'll let myself go longer than 25 minutes but at the very minimum, I'll do my 25 minutes, and then I I switch my attention to something else. So I might cruise the web, get up and move around a little bit, just something to change my attention for a little bit. And this is, as we found earlier, a really important part of assimilating or mastering or understanding whatever you're working on. It's a little bit like while you're focusing, you've got the roast in the oven cooking, and then diffuse mode afterwards when you relax or reward yourself, you've taken the roast out and it's continuing to cook a little bit, right? You just don't want to jump right in and, and have that roast. So we always used to think that you only learned when you were focusing. But that little diffuse mode is when you're also you're consolidating and processing whatever you've been trying to work on. And that helps you to understand it more effectively. Changing gears a little bit. One of the things that you've talked about is why the idea of following your passion isn't necessarily the right direction to go in. Could you talk about that for a moment? I think that 
That's a very important question. And the reason is there are many sort of competing poles in anyone's life. There's how you internally feel, right, about what you want to do. And some things come easier to some people than to other people. So let me give you one interesting example. It turns out, you might ask, what effect does testosterone have between men and women and their understanding of math and science? Oh, boy, that's a scary question, right? Uh, What research shows is, well, it really doesn't have any difference, actually. Men and women, on average, are equally capable in learning math and science. But testosterone does have an effect on some aspects of what we're interested in, what we think we're good at. And that is that testosterone, unfortunately, when in fetuses and young children, what it can do is it delays the development. It doesn't stop, but it delays verbal development in boys, right? Because they've got more testosterone. Well, clearly it doesn't do this in girls. So as boys and girls develop, what happens is guys will kind of lag behind initially. They catch up later. They'll lag behind verbally. And so within themselves, they'll look at at themselves and they'll go, you know, I'm better at analytical sorts of things. And women on the other side, on the other hand, they'll go, they'll look inside themselves and they'll go, you know, I'm better at verbal sorts of things than analytical things. And, And it's true, even though men and women are the same in their analytical skills, right? So what this really means is that women sometimes look inside themselves and go, you know, I'm just naturally better at verbal sorts of things. So that's what I should do in my career. And guys will go, oh, you know, I'm better at analytical sorts of things. So that's what I should do in my career, even though they both have the same sorts of capabilities. So when we tell people, you know, just follow your passions, what that really equates to is a lot of the time is simply do whatever is easiest for you, whatever feels the easiest. And so, you know, then guys will kind of go off into technologicals more often, and this is all on average, more technologically sort of uh, uh, related sort of issues. And of course, that's an advantage today because technology is really important in today's society. And women, on the other hand, will, you know, they'll hear, follow your passion, and they'll say, well, gosh, you know, English comes so much easier to me. That must be my passion, even though they could be equally good at, at something more technological or matching it with something technological. And off they'll go into something that's perhaps not going to benefit them in the workforce. You need to be, it's important to be strategic about your learning. Passions can lead us to dead ends, as I found when I I learned Russian. This doesn't mean that you give up on your passions. It means you use a little bit of common sense to see if either you can combine your passion with something else or find a way to to at least make sure that you got a um, a workable living in the real world that that can kind of combine and help support whatever your creative passions may involve so sometimes 
like I heard a psychology professor, and I, I love psychology. I write about psychology. But the psychology professor was telling, he said, oh, I told these parents that their child should go into psychology because psychology is a general sort of thing. Now, engineering or, you know, something like engineering, you're, you're very specialized in what you can do, whereas psychology is very general. And that's, that's like a complete misconception of what, what's going on in, in those two careers. Engineering is a general field. You can do, like, look at Jeff Bezos. He has engineering degrees, but he's the CEO of a company. You look at, uh, in fact, there was a study done on what is the top factor in common of all the world's leading companies. And that factor was that they were led by CEOs who were originally trained as engineers, not as accountants, not as English majors, as engineers. And engineering helps you to think in terms of, of trade-offs. Now, I'm not saying that engineering is the be-all and end-all. And if you have got a degree in psychology, it, it actually, I love it. It's a wonderful thing. But it's a very good idea to, as much as you can, to broaden your skill set. So if you are really good at sort of humanities or social science oriented sorts of things, it's a good idea to try to broaden into something just a bit more technical. And if you are more technical, then you want to go the other way. You want to enhance your public speaking skills and your writing skills. So just broadening your passion, I think, is the way to go. Don't just follow your passion. You want to broaden it. What is one piece of homework that you would give to listeners who want to practically implement some of these ideas in their lives starting today? I would say to get out a piece of paper and write down where are they now and where do they want to go? What direction do they want to go at? And then here's what I would suggest. I would say Go to an outfit called Class Central online, and Class Central is a wonderful mechanism for taking online courses, really good ones, and go in there and see what kinds of free or very low-cost learning might help you to get to wherever you want to go in, in your learning and in your life, and kind of head off a little bit. Learning doesn't have to be you can learn too much. You can fill your life with learning to the detriment of other things like relationships or, or just relaxing a little bit. But learning, it, it's kind of like exercise for the brain. Having a little bit of exercise during the day helps you to be a healthier human being. And in a similar way, just having a consistent learning program of some sort also helps your brain. It literally makes it more healthy. It allows new neurons to survive and thrive and grow when you've got that sort of trellis of learning for those new neurons that are being born every day to sort of grow onto. If you're not trying to learn anything new, then you become one of those kind of as you're growing older, sort of stuck in a rut, kind of inflexible sorts of people. 
And nobody wants to be that in their learnings or in their life. So learning can help just make you a fun person to be around, as well as the most interesting person in the room. Where can people find you and, and the book and your courses online? Well, if you go to my website, it's www.barbaraoakley.com. And there are links there for the Learning How to Learn course, which is free, by the way. And and, and that's really, I mean, you, you can buy a certificate if you would like, uh, but it's all the material is right there for free. And it took me a long time to develop that course. And we did it in our basement. I, I do have to tell you that I was invited to speak at Harvard about the course once. And I, I, I was so nervous. Here I am, this little Midwestern engineer. I walk in the door and it's like filled with Harvard and MIT and, you know, Kennedy School folks. And I wonder what the heck is going on. And it's because our one little course made for less than $5,000 in my basement, mostly, has on the order of the same number of students as all of Harvard's course, online courses put together, made for millions of dollars with hundreds of people. So that tells you it's, it's a course that people really like. And so you can also find a link to my new book, MindShift, which will be coming out very soon. And uh, that one, I traveled all around the world to, to research and write. It's pretty exciting. And there's also a MOOC, a massive open online course, coming out about that. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for being on the show and, and sharing your wisdom. I think there's, there's so many lessons here about how we can become better learners. So thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I would love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? Because of that, we've created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, -E to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. If you want to get all this amazing info, links, transcripts, everything we talked about, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes at scienceofsuccess.co. Just hit the show notes button at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. 
Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.